That's my favorite part of a worship service, by the way. I think we all come in to worship uh, so often, and if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that, that we, we need someone to remind us that we are forgiven, and not because of anything that you have done, but because of the perfect life of Jesus that stands in before you and because of his intercession on your behalf. So if you don't hear anything else, know that because of Jesus, all who come to God are offered free and full forgiveness and the power to change. Our uh, scripture this morning that we're going to be in is uh, a familiar passage for a lot of us in Matthew chapter 28. It starts in verse 16. I'm going to read this passage, and I'm going to pray, and then I'll do my best to explain and apply it uh, to us. So the Great Commission, Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. It reads, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We pray for me, with me and for me. <laughs> Heavenly Father, We know that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the glory of the Lord and the word of the Lord stands forever. So, Father, would you attend now to the preaching of your word? Would you yourself speak? Would you cause your word to take root in our hearts and to bear fruit in our lives, in our relationships, in our behaviors, in our affections, in our speech? We ask in Jesus' mighty name, amen. You're going to want to keep your Bible open if you have it. Uh, As we look here at this passage from Matthew 28, Uh, the name J.I. Packer will be familiar to some of you. Um, He uh, recently passed away uh, just about a month ago, and uh, I'm, I'm on a group text of some pastor friends of mine, and it was late one night. And I was actually just like turning on my alarm, you know, to put my phone uh, down uh, on the bedside table. And I, I got a text from my friend. It said, hey, J.I. Packer just died. And I was a little overwhelmed uh, because he, he wrote a book called Knowing God, which I think for, certainly for some of you in this room might be one of the most significant books outside of the Bible that, that you've ever read. Uh, and for me, it was. Uh, I remember I was in college, or right out of college, and I was on Young Life staff, and, and there was this older, uh, wise guy in Young Life named Ty Saltzgiver, who I really respected. And me and my friend Russell, who's also a Presbyterian minister now, which is hilarious. Uh, so my friend Russell McCutcheon and I were sitting, and we, we said, Ty, like uh, Ru- Russell was doing urban ministry in uh, Oklahoma at the time, and he was like, yo, Ty. What's, you know, tell us what to read. And, uh, and Ty was like, okay, 
the biggest book besides the Bible for me was Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Specifically, there's this one chapter on adoption. It's called Sons of God. And y'all, I read that and it absolutely scrambled my eggs in terms of thinking about God and his love and of my security in him and his love for me. I mean, it was just so awesome. So I was, I was really overwhelmed to hear that J.I. Packer had passed away. And I went back and I was reminded of this book that he wrote just a few years before he died. And he was going blind. He was really far on and pretty frail. And he wrote this book called Weakness is the Way. And he made this little promo video for it. And um, this is what he says. He says, in our society today, strength, or at least imagined strength, is applauded. And weakness is thought of as a defect. It means that you've missed the best in life. And then he goes on to talk about how since the age of seven, he's always felt of himself as a weak person. Uh, he was involved in this accident when he was uh, a child, where he was playing out in the street and he was hit by a truck. So he had to be indoors for a really long time. He always had a dent in the side of his head. And as he was growing up, people thought like, you know, maybe he, you know, won't be that intelligent or he won't be able to, to compete intellectually with other people. And of course not. I mean, he wrote like a bazillion books. And so he's talking about this, about this feeling of weakness being impaired. And then the camera moves and you see his face and he's almost 90 at this point. And he, he's looking at the camera. His eyes are kind of, you know, squinty because he can't really see. And he says, I've now reached the point in life where inevitably I'm wearing out physically. I can't have many more years left in me. And he says, so as I'm conscious of coming to the end of my life, I'm reminded of this feeling of weakness. And then he says, God doesn't allow us to stay with the idea that we are strong. He said, oh, we may have that idea, but the Lord is going to disabuse us of it one way or another. And it will be good for us when he does it. And it will give glory to him when he does so. So for you, this morning, I want to ask the question, how has 2020 been? How many of you walked into church this morning feeling strong? <laughs> or how many of you, over the last couple months, have felt humbled, hobbled, chastened? a little weak, and could you believe that feeling weak, feeling chastened, this feeling of, of maybe powerlessness, frustration sometimes, that that actually may be God's best for you right now, that actually that may be a sign, not that God's, you know, will isn't working, but actually that God really is at work in your life right now. Could you believe that actually when it comes to doing the things that we have been called to do as God's people, as God's church, that weakness rather than strength could actually be the most effective way? And so this morning, I want to look at this theme of weakness and strength and I want to look at our calling and commission as a church in the very end here of Matthew 28. 
and I want to see how the pattern of Jesus's earthly ministry, which as you remember, was humiliation leading to exaltation, suffering, you know, and, and crucifixion resulting in resurrection and strength and power and glory, uh, vulnerability combined with authority, how that pattern of Jesus's earthly ministry actually sets the pattern for our life and our calling as God's people in the church. So I want to look at this passage in two sections. First, I want us to see Jesus's empowering confession And then I want to look at the church's cruciform commission. I'll explain what I mean by that when we get there. So first, just in the beginning and the end of this passage, look at Jesus's empowering confession. And we can look at it almost in two parts. This confession of Jesus's authority and also a confession of proximity or nearness. First, Jesus's authority. He says in verse 16, all authority, all authority. In Greek, the word all means all. All, every authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And and to understand how shocking those words might be, I I want you to just be reacquainted with the context for a second. You know, Jesus has just suffered and died. He's been humiliated and, and brutalized, abandoned by his friends. Basically, he, it looks like he's lost. And then he gathers this uh, group of 11 disciples. Remember, 11, because one of them had betrayed him and then um, had taken his own life. And he calls this kind of imperfect group of people together. And he, he calls them up to a mountain. And what does our text say? He calls them up and they worshiped him, but they also doubted. <laughs> They were worshiping and doubted. So there's like this mixed motive, half-hearted group of incomplete people, one of whom had already left the group. And he calls them up together and he says, guess what? Imagine anything on heaven or on earth, anything in all creation, anything that's powerful, anything that's mighty, anything that you think has control or influence. Guess what? I have more. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I just think this is incredible. It's like Jesus is saying, everything, everything has been placed under my feet. Now, this should be very comforting to us in a time like this. Because, y'all, we just had an earthquake recently, which is crazy. So it's like pandemic, earthquake, uh, hurricane, a lot of other kind of like nuts, natural disaster things have happened. Um, economic strife, uh, social tension. Nobody trusts one another. Everyone's arguing with each other all the time. Um, the idea of God's authority and Jesus' supremacy over all things, super comforting. Uh, uh, Christians historically have called this idea God's providence. God's rule and reign over all human circumstances and events, right? So that God is working all things, even the really tough things, for his glory and for our good. That's God's providence. And certainly this is talking about that. But even more than that, there's this this other idea that Jesus is saying, I'm not just in control providentially over all circumstances. 
I also have authority and I also am Lord over all people. Because all things on heaven and earth includes you. It includes all parts of your life. Your finances, your relationships, your desires, your decisions, your habits, your hobbies. Jesus is saying, I'm Lord of all of that. Nothing is off limits for me. And that may not be comforting. That actually may be a little bit intimidating to some of us. But Jesus is saying, nevertheless, I am the Lord and King of the entire world and also of your life because you are my people who have been called by my name. Nothing is going to stand against me. And then he has this other amazing confession at the end of the section where he says, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I mean, you could do a, um, like a word study of this passage, just, just tracing the language of all and every and forever in here. So Jesus is basically at the very beginning saying, all authority is mine. And then at the very end, he's saying, how long am I going to be with you? All the days, <laughs> through all seasons, through all times, good and bad, sickness and health. So Jesus is saying, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. He's saying, I am closer to you than your very thoughts. I know you better than your best friend. I know all your secret motivations and thoughts and desires of everything you do. And guess what? I still want to be with you. I still want to be in your life. I'm drawn to you and I'm drawing you to me. That's what he's saying. And so these twin confessions give us this utterly unique picture of, of who God is. I, I, and they, they combine these two aspects of, of high and lifted up power and authority and also nearness and intimacy that we really don't see very often. And in fact, most of us don't even combine these things when we think about God typically. You know, I don't know if you've ever played this game. It's called Would You Rather? And sometimes I'll play it with my kids. We'll play it with our, um, our students as like a mixer in RUF. And we'll throw out, the whole idea of the game is you throw out two kind of bad options. And you say, which of these bad options would you rather have? So, hey, would you rather sneeze spaghetti for the rest of your life? Or would you rather, you know, cough meatballs for the rest of your life? And people will be like, are they good meatballs? Like, is it really thick spaghetti or like skinny spaghetti? Is it spicy? And you're like, and then you have to figure it out. So it's awesome. Go and play it. <laughs> but sometimes, I just want to say, sometimes when I'm meeting with students or I'm talking with fellow Christians, it seems like we do the same thing in our conception of God. Like, we think we either have to pick a God who is super high and lifted up, but we don't really know how he feels about us and he's not really super involved in the, the intimate details of our life. Or we go, well, would you rather have a God who's like your buddy and your best friend and you feel all warm and fuzzy from him, but he's never going to tell you anything uh, to do that you didn't already want to do on your own. He's never ever going to discipline you. He's never ever going to disappoint you. He's never going to do anything that you don't understand or feel good about. So which is it? What would you rather have? And the answer is neither. <laughs> The, the picture of the God in the Bible is neither so high and lifted up that he can't be involved in the intimate details of your life. And he's not so close and intimate 
that he also isn't going to discipline those he loves as children, that he's not going to get in your life and rearrange it a little bit. The God of the Bible is both, and he's calling us to embrace him in all of his authority and all of his intimate closeness and involvement in our lives and to submit to him and to walk with him and to learn from him. And these twin confessions of of authority and vulnerability, when they come together, it's like this picture of God that we have in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, of a, of a refuge or a fortress. Right? That, that in uh, Psalm 46, it says, God is our refuge and our strength, which means, you know, he's close around us, but also he's high and mighty and nothing can stand against him. I don't know if you remember the words to Psalm 46. It goes, God is our refuge and our strength. Therefore, we will not fear. We will not be afraid. I think certainly Jesus is saying, hey, because I'm strong and high and lifted up and because I'm I'm close to you, you don't need to be afraid. But it's not just that. The logic of the Great Commission says, because God is our refuge and our strength, because God is mighty and because he is near, it's not just, therefore, don't be afraid. It's because God is high and lifted up and because God is near, because he is powerful and because he's close. Therefore, go. Don't just sit in the fortress. Don't just sit in the refuge. Don't just kind of hole up for a long siege, you know, and and eat a bunch of carbs and just kind of wait it out like a bear in hibernation. He's saying, therefore, because I'm protecting you and I'm around you and because I'm powerful, Get out there. Don't be afraid to go. And so that's where we see the second half of this passage, really the middle section where Jesus describes the church's commission, what I'm calling the the cruciform commission of the church. Jesus says, go, therefore, because of who I am. Because I'm so mighty and because I'm so near to you. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all, remember that word all, that I have commanded you. Now, what do I mean when I say that this is a cruciform commission? I do just like that word and it it kind of has alliteration, so I did want to pick it, but I love the concept of things being cruciform. It's this idea from medieval architecture. Like if you've ever been to a, an older church, and if you were to, let's say, you know, take a drone and fly it over an old chapel, like Westminster Chapel in uh, London or uh, other chapels around the world, that you might notice that the outline of the building is shaped like a cross. The building is cruciform, formed like a cross. And what basically means is that the pattern of this building was modeled after the symbol of Jesus' suffering. It's modeled after the cross. And what I want to suggest is that the, the marching orders that Jesus gives to his church are also shaped around the pattern of his sacrificial death, his sacrificial life here on earth. And I want to just prove that to you, I think, by looking at uh, the two ways Jesus describes 
uh, the one command of making disciples. These two ideas of baptizing and teaching. Now, just so you know, sometimes when you read this passage in English, it can be hard to figure out how many commands are in the Great Commission. You know, is it like four? You know, it's like go is one, and then baptizing is one, and discipling is one, and teaching is one. Actually, there really is just one command. And all the other things in there just kind of explain what that command is. And the one command, the one imperative that is in the Great Commission is make disciples. And so he's saying, your job as the church, this is what it is, to make disciples. Disciple-making is what you're about. The church is the disciple-making people. Everything that we do is about discipling. And this is what discipling looks like. First, he says, baptizing. And this is really interesting because um, a lot of times in evangelistic circles, you kind of think baptism is the thing that happens at the end, right? It's like you go to the rally or you go to the revival or you go to the camp and then you have this experience of belief and faith. And then, you know, finish line is great. We got them baptized. But actually in the Bible, <laughs> when you look at all of the Bible, um, baptism is where you administer the sign of the covenant. So baptism is where it's not the finish line. It's actually the starting line. It's where, hey, you actually now, here's the front door into the covenant community of God's people. And once you walk through that door, you're a member of God's family now. You've been baptized. You've been washed. You have the sign of initiation so now, wonderful, you're, you're, you're welcomed into the family of God, the visible community of God's people. That's what baptism is. It's just like circumcision was in the Old Testament. If you wanted to you know, come into the people of God of Israel, you got circumcised. And if you wanted to uh, become a member of the community of God's people now and under the new covenant, you get baptized. And so because baptism is this uh, rite of initiation into God's family, it's kind of like being adopted. Like parents, if you adopt a child, that's not the finish line, right? We got them adopted. Now they'll just raise themselves. It's like, no, you, you have a whole lifetime of committed work with that person. You're, you're, you're yoked to them and knitted together with them for better or for worse for a really long time. <laughs> that's why it's not a small thing. You know, when Paul baptizes a child, then he brings them up or he or she up into the center and everyone goes, yeah, we're going to help raise this child. Because, yeah, they're one of us, like it or not, for a really long time. (laughs) So baptism is this uh, commitment to go deep with people. And then this word teaching, I just want you to notice, is one of the most intimate communication words that they use in the New Testament. Jesus could have said, hey, just uh, proclaim a bunch of stuff, preach a bunch of stuff prophesy a bunch of stuff, sing a bunch of stuff, pray a bunch of stuff. I mean, these are all words that describe things that the church does in the New Testament, right? But instead, Jesus says, teach them, tutor them, school them. And if you all have ever been to the tutoring ministry here, you know that that requires getting down on level with people, coming alongside them, and in this very personal way, helping them grow and learn the skills necessary to perform the task that God has called them to. 
Now, whether it's, you know, you're sitting down with young children, you're teaching them how to write your letters. You know, you don't just put the dictionary in front of them, you drop it down the desk and you go, figure it out. You're in school, so you got to figure out how to write these letters. No, instead, you sit and you open it up and you go, hey, let's, let's trace that. Let me show you how to hold the pencil. Let me sit with you. Hey, you tried that. That was good. Your S's are backwards, but I'm not going to make you feel bad. I'm just going to make you feel encouraged and look at how much good stuff you've done. And I'm going to walk with you and we're going to get this right, right? Jesus is saying, when someone comes into the family of God, what, what we're supposed to do is we are supposed to come alongside them to enroll them in the school of Jesus and to stick with them, to encourage them, to, to, to lift them up when they fall down, to help them learn the stuff that nobody expects them to just learn on their own, that you have to be taught in order to know how to do these things, and to come alongside people in love and stick with them. That's what he means by teaching people. It's this long-term commitment. And how long do people have to be enrolled in the school of Christ, would you say? I mean, how long does it take to learn everything that Jesus has commanded? I mean, how, is it, how long does it take to master everything, all of God's law, all of the gospel, you know, all of like to, to memorize, uh, let's just say memorize the Psalms. How long does it take to fully apply the Ten Commandments in your life? How long does it take to, to, to be, you know, fully trained in all of those things? Well, I would say your whole life and then on into eternity. <laughs> and so for all of us who are enrolled in the school of Christ, this idea that the curriculum is everything should really humble us and help us remember that we have to take a long-term view with other people. And we also have to take a long-term view with ourselves to know that everyone in the church is on this process of sanctification and discipleship at a different stage. Right? And that, that God's going to be with us as we go. So that our work, even in the life of just one person in the church, is never finished. So this call is a call to go slow. But I also, just as I wrap up, want to mention that it is a call to go low. <laughs> because as Jesus calls his disciples up onto this mountain, what does he do? He says, go out. And as they're, they're kind of thinking, what's the first thing that you have to do when you're up on a mountain and someone tells you to go out? Well, going out means going down. Notice Jesus doesn't say, uh, stand up here on the mountain and shout down. And maybe all those people down there who don't know who I am and uh, don't know how to do all the things that are involved in the Christian life, how to obey everything that I've commanded you, just shout down at them and eventually they'll come up to you or they'll just kind of get it. No. Jesus says you have to go where they are. And going where they are is a process of descent. It's a process of humiliation. It's a process of, of going down and meeting people on their level. And so what this means, I think, is just in the way that we are with people, certainly in the church, and also this has application for the way we relate to people outside of the church, but we as Christians ought never to speak down at other people. We don't speak down at people who are suffering and stuck in some besetting sin that's ruining their life. 
because we know what it's like to be caught in sin and to struggle with repentance and to be in need of God's healing power. Uh, We don't speak down at other people who are less knowledgeable in areas of doctrine than we are. Uh, We don't uh, speak down at other people who don't understand uh, something about the worship or the ways of of God's people. No. We, We always speak on level, respectfully, to brothers and sisters. And I think what this also means, by the way, is um, uh, we don't ever, we don't speak for victory. <laughs> and what I mean by this is um, th- there was this really, really brilliant writer named Samuel Johnson. He, um, he wrote in the 1800s. And he was this brilliant thinker, cultural critic, and um, someone who wrote about him in his eulogy said he had just one flaw. Whenever he spoke, he spoke for victory. So that if you ever disagreed with him, you were going to get pummeled into the ground because he was so smart. He was so well studied. He was so knowledgeable that you couldn't just disagree with him unless you you were ready to get demolished. And I think for us, especially in the time that we live in, it's such a temptation, isn't it? To enter into conversations determined to win. And as Christians... We ought never to, you know, spike the ball at people that we're in conversation with. We ought never to leave people um, feeling humiliated. You know, as Christians, uh, we're really interested in winning people more than winning arguments. And I think that this means especially that if we're going to talk about um, a topic that's full of emotion or full of disagreement or full of nuance, that we're going to try to do that in as personal and face-to-face a way as possible, right? To communicate to people that even though we disagree with them, we still care about them and we still want connection and relationship with them. Uh, That's super important, especially for my my college friends. (laughs) You've heard me say this before. But I think finally, the thing that it really means for us is if we, if we have it firmly embedded in our hearts and our minds that Jesus is the one who has all authority, that Jesus is the one who has all power, that Jesus is never going to leave us or forsake us, and Jesus is calling us to do this long, slow, very personal and deep and humbling work with other people, it's going to give us a certain kind of posture and a certain kind of open-handedness and a certain kind of humility. And uh, I was reminded of this when I was, uh, you know, when we were locked inside for a couple months and uh, I was watching um, the Michael Jordan documentary on ESPN. And I was watching this and I thought, man, there's like nothing this guy can't do. I mean, he can jump like, you know, 50 feet in the air and he can score a bazillion points in the last five minutes of a game. I mean, he was like superhuman. And then as I was watching more and more, maybe you had the same experience. I thought, no, there is one thing he can't do he can't lose. Not because he's incapable of losing. I mean, he lost plenty of times, but he can't handle losing. Because when he lost, he felt like a loser. And so what I want to suggest to us as Christians is if you come into the family of God, part of that is just admitting you've already lost. (laughs) Like you, like, accepting baptism is basically saying, I need my sins washed away. I've screwed up. I've tried to live this life on my own. I've tried to be my own God and that doesn't work. And guess what? I've lost. 
And Jesus, you're high and lifted up. You're my conquering king and you've conquered me. You've conquered the enemy territory of my heart and I'm bowing my knee to you. So there's this humbling effect at the very beginning of relationship with Jesus. And so because of that reason, having already been humbled, we shouldn't be afraid to lose. Because we're strong, because he's already won, and because we know what's happening, because um, God has put everything into Jesus's hands and we know where we came from and we know where we're going, we can stoop and we can serve. I mean, you know this, parents. Weak people can pick and win all kinds of fights, but it takes a strong person to walk away from a fight. Are you strong enough to suffer? Are you strong enough to be humbled? Are you strong enough to be weak so that God can be strong? I pray that God would make it so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you Lord Jesus, that you are not so high and lifted up that you also don't dwell with the lowly and the contrite and the meek and the hungry and the thirsty. Lord Jesus, would you so work in our hearts a sense of your victory and your power and your authority that you would help us to walk with humility in the way we speak and the way we live. And Lord, would you make us people of prayer, knowing that if anything happens, it is by your power. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.